a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, thanks for joining the Bible study today. Today we're finishing the second chapter of Luke. It concludes Luke's account of Jesus' birth in early years. When we get to chapter 3, verse 1, which Ron will lead us to look at next week, we'll find Jesus, a full-grown man, about to begin his earthly ministry. There's going to be about an 18-year gap between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Both Matthew and Luke give us details of the birth of Jesus. Luke tells us, you'll remember, after 400 years of prophetic silence, the angel suddenly appears to the priest, Zechariah, as he's offering the incense offering there in the temple. The angel told him that his barren, aged wife, Elizabeth, would have a baby, John the Baptist who's going to be the one prophesied to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. And so God begins a series now of announcements. After that, Luke tells us how the angel appeared to Mary, and then later to Joseph. And then after nine months, Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary there in Bethlehem, just as God had prophesied through Micah and, and of course, some prophecies from Isaiah 700 years earlier before all this happened. Luke also tells us about how Mary and Joseph had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, as was commanded for all Jewish boy babies. And he also tells us how they offered the appropriate sacrifices for Mary's purification a few weeks later. Ron helped us see that earlier. And then last week, Ron shared with us the important passages. Turn out to be really, really important, and we tend to overlook them so easily. But they tell us about these important testimonies from Simeon and from Anna, very important part of God's Word. We learn from Matthew that Mary and Joseph then found a house there in Bethlehem and stayed there a while longer, maybe as much as two years longer, until the Magi from the east, led by a supernatural star, you remember this, found them there and and they worshiped Jesus. Matthew also tells us that God sent an angel to warn Joseph to take Mary and Jesus, Jesus to Egypt to escape because Herod was going to kill him. When Herod died, the angel told Joseph that Joseph could now take Mary and Jesus back to Israel. So he did. But when Joseph arrived in Judea, he learned that Herod's son, Archelaus, was now governing Judea. And Joseph was afraid of Archelaus, so he took his little family back to Nazareth up in Galilee, about 80 miles north. Jesus was probably around three or four years old by that time. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40... We learn all that we know about Jesus from that time until Jesus was 12 years old, which would have been around 8 AD. So verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It's kind of hard for me, I'm sure it is for you too, not to use our imaginations to try to fill in some details here. We'd love to have some more details. For example, we wonder what it was like for Mary and Joseph to have this perfect little boy child. I mean, we wonder what the interaction must have been like between Jesus and Mary and Joseph, but also between Jesus and James and Jude and his other siblings, you know. Uh, We wonder what it would have been like to have a sinless 
child there in the home? How would that sinless child behave? It's a little bit hard to imagine it. We're so used to kids being selfish and demanding and lazy and deceptive and all the other sins that come along with being a kid. For example, think about the fact that Jesus never gave in to the sin of laziness. Never. Try to imagine what that might have meant. It's, it's probably impossible for us, but it certainly, I would think, meant that he memorized a lot of Scripture very early in his life. I want us to think about that for just a minute. Let me ask you something. Have you ever disciplined yourself enough to memorize quite a bit of Scripture over a period of weeks, maybe, or months, or even years, maybe? You know, you got convicted you need to hide more of God's Word in your heart, and you started working on it. But it doesn't have to even be Scripture. Uh, maybe you've disciplined yourself at some point in your life, maybe on a job or something. You had to memorize a bunch of stuff. And you had to do it over a period of time. It was just too much to do all at once, so it took some time. Well, if you've ever done that, you'll probably be able to identify with this. When you first started doing the memory work, it was very slow. You remember that? <laughs> so difficult. <laughs> Your memory muscles weren't in shape. <laughs> memory muscles, I better put that in quote, not really muscles, of course. But, but it was very hard and very slow, and it required a lot of repetition and determination and a lot of discipline, didn't it? It wasn't easy. It took perseverance on your part. It was tiring for your brain. It kind of wore you out. And it's not something we just naturally want to do. It takes discipline. But after a while, you may have noticed that you were, really were able to memorize things more quickly than you had been earlier. It's like your brain's beginning to get whipped into shape. <laughs> you, you remember that feeling? And it works a little more efficiently. I mean, it's never totally easy, but it works more efficiently. Mental discipline tends to make us look smarter than we really are if we just exercise the mental discipline. <laughs> but most of us don't want to do that. It's a lot of work. If we demanded our kids be less lazy <laughs> and more disciplined, we might be surprised at how many more kids we'd just have, wow, uh, this is a child prodigy. <laughs> It's, it's all in discipline. But we feel guilty about that, don't we? We feel guilty about pushing them too hard. You know, we, we, we know we haven't pushed ourselves that hard either, so it's kind of hard, and we feel guilty about pushing our kids too hard. And, of course, all through the process, the kids resist being pushed too hard. <laughs> so it tends to go kind of slow, and sometimes we just give up on the whole project. But think about Jesus. He never ever sinfully indulged himself in laziness. He wasn't lazy, ever. He was self-disciplined from the very beginning. He didn't sin. Now, I know some people say, well, yeah, but he was God in the flesh. That didn't count. I mean, it was easy for him, right? He's God. Now, I know it's true. He was fully God and fully man, but let's be careful here. Because in Paul's letter to the Philippians, we know that in some sense, Jesus decided to lay aside certain aspects of his deity so that he could become identified with us when he became a man. Let's, let's just read that passage in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, look at this, but emptied himself emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 7 says he emptied himself. And that, again, that kind of arouses our curiosity. We're not sure all that it implies. But we do know that he emptied himself of his deity to the point that he could be tempted to sin, just like we are. The Bible is very clear about that. Over in Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, you hear that? One, see it right there? Who's in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Now, that's very, very important. Jesus was tempted. This verse says, in every respect, just as we're tempted. Can you imagine how tempted he must have been, even as a child? To lose his temper when he saw other people doing dumb things. <laughs> he watched other people doing dumb, sinful things. Unbiblical thinking. Crazy thinking. He was tempted, just as we are. Tempted to be lazy. Tempted to give in to the flesh. Tempted to sinful anger. Tempted to sexual sins. Tempted to be self-centered. You know, on and on, just down the list you can go. But, you know, we learn from James that God cannot be tempted. Remember that? Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But wait, Jesus was tempted, but Jesus was God, right? He is God. So is this a contradiction? No, not at all. Because while Jesus was a man, he emptied himself. He gave up some of what it meant to be God including the inability to be tempted so that he could truly identify with us and our temptations. <laughs> so it's hard for us to put all this together, but he was tempted, but he never sinned. Some early writers were so desperate to have details of Jesus' childhood, they used their imaginations and they just made some things up. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, maybe funny in a way, but there's a fictional book from the second century called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Don't confuse that with what's called The Gospel of Thomas. That was another heretical book. The Gospel of Thomas was written by Gnostic heretics. It was also written in the early part of the second century. But this so-called Infancy Gospel of Thomas <laughs> tells some really wild, made-up stories about Jesus when he was a young boy. For example, it says Jesus and his friends made some clay pigeons and then Jesus gave them life and they flew away. That's not biblical, of course. Just a made-up story. <laughs> he was also portrayed in that book as actually killing some other kids by the use of curses when they crossed him the wrong way. Like one of the kids, I think, poured out some water maybe that Jesus had collected. And maybe one of the kids had bumped into Jesus or hit him or something. And, <laughs> and Jesus just cursed them and they died. And the neighbors complained to Mary and Joseph that Jesus was killing their kids. And so Jesus struck those neighbors blind. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't sound like the biblical Jesus at all. By the way, in the book, later Jesus changed his mind and reversed all those curses. So kids came back to life. Supposedly, he raised another kid from the dead after the kid had fallen off a roof. And he healed another kid when he cut his foot with an axe. And, you know, just all kinds of stories. They just used their imaginations and made it up because they were like we are, they were curious about what Jesus was like when he was a kid. It's all pure fiction. But one of the things it shows, by the way, I think very clearly, is how famous Jesus was by the second century. 
This is only a few years after the death of John, the Apostle John. Jesus was so well known that people were making up stories about his childhood because they were curious about what he must have been like as a child. But none of those stories are from God. God chose not to give us many details at all about these years. No matter what our curiosities would like for him to have shared with us, he chose not to. And we really don't know why. He doesn't tell us why he doesn't give us any of these details. But it does make sense that he might have done it to protect immature kids through the centuries from contrasting themselves with the perfect boy Jesus. You know, before a kid matures, they can get pretty discouraged and, and kind of give up because they're weak in the flesh, of course, like all of us are, if they try to compare themselves with the perfect Jesus. In any case, Luke picked up the story a few years later when Jesus was 12 years old, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 23, God commanded all the Israelite males to come to the tabernacle, later, of course, the temple, to offer sacrifices three times a year. One was often called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was associated with the Passover. They were right together on the calendar. The 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar, Nisan, was the Passover. And then the next day, the 15th of Nisan, down through the 21st of Nisan, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By the way, the 15th day of Nisan and the 21st day of Nisan were high holy days. They were annual Sabbaths. There were seven of those on the Hebrew calendar. They were treated just like a weekly Sabbath day, but they could fall on any day of the week. They didn't fall on what we call Saturday, or didn't usually. And many times, that feast time altogether was simply called Passover. But everybody knew it included that whole eight-day period, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes it also went by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <laughs> they, they, used out, they left out the word Passover, even though everybody knew it included the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be the Passover as well. So it can cause some confusion. They were also required to go up to the temple, by the way, on the Feast of Weeks, which is called Pentecost in the New Testament. And here's how that worked. There was a weekly Sabbath, of course, at some point during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the day after that Sabbath, which would be the first day of the week, we call it Sunday, that, that was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was called the Feast of the First Fruits, And they had to offer certain grain offerings on that day. Then from that Sabbath day that landed inside the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they counted 50 days, which would always end up on the first day of the week again, what we call a Sunday, and they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And they were required to go down and offer sacrifices on that day. Then in the fall of the year, uh, there were several festivals. On the first day of the month of Tishri, they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. It was just a one-day annual Sabbath. Nine days after the Feast of Trumpets, on the tenth day of that month, they celebrated another annual Sabbath. It was a fast day called the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th day of that month of Tishri, the week of the Feast of Tabernacles began. And like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first and last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles were high holy days or annual Sabbaths. And Jewish males were required to make this pilgrimage wherever they were. They had to make their way back three times a year for Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, with Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, they would get back as often as they could. As time went on, many times they wouldn't be able to get there uh, three times a year, and if they could only get there once, 
They would try to make it to the Passover if they possibly could. It was the most important in their minds. Probably most important in God's mind too. Because that, of course, is when Jesus was going to die. He was crucified at Passover because he was the Passover lamb. The ultimate Passover lamb. What all these other Passover lambs portrayed was Jesus, the Lamb of God. Well, often the men would go with their wives and maybe take part of their families with them too. Uh, the Jews felt like women were especially devout if they could work it out to make that pilgrimage with her husband down to Jerusalem to the temple. So Joseph and Mary made it a point to make this very difficult 80-mile trip every year. It makes sense that they would have been especially committed. I mean, it would have been especially important to them. They probably didn't understand all that it meant but it had certainly been revealed to them that they were parenting an incredibly important son, Jesus, the Son of God. They knew that. They may not have known at that point all that it implied, but they knew he was incredibly important. And, and when, when they took Jesus as a boy to celebrate the Passover, and when Jesus witnessed the killing of those lambs, can you imagine what that was like for him? You know, there were thousands and thousands of lambs killed at the Passover. The blood ran down in the Kidron Valley. It was a terrible bloodletting from a human perspective, but God was using this to point to the way he was going to forgive sins through the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And wouldn't it be fascinating to know exactly when Jesus began to realize as a little child, all those lambs were pointing to him. He was the Son of God. He was the Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God, who had come to take away the sins of the world. It had to be an awesome realization for Jesus when he became old enough to understand it. Verse 42, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, again, we have to keep in mind that Jesus was and always had been sinless. <laughs> that meant Joseph and Mary had never, ever had a problem with Jesus being disobedient, ever. Now, just think about that. <laughs> I think we, we've probably all known children who are very sneaky, right? Can some of them come into your mind? They were always trying to pull a fast one, you know. You just knew this kid can't be trusted. i got to keep a close eye on this kid. They're going to get in trouble. <laughs> and it's ironic. Often these are the kids that get a little bit older who are always whining and complaining that we won't trust them. <laughs> After years of dealing with their lying and deception and rebellion, now, for some reason, we won't trust them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, I bet you can also remember some kids. Of course, they weren't perfect and sinless. We've never known a child who was perfect and sinless. All of them, just like us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, except for Jesus. But most of us have had, or we've known kids, <laughs> but we didn't get the blessing of having them, <laughs> but they were much more compliant than their siblings. In general, they told the truth. In general, you just knew you could trust them. In general, they followed instructions. 
in general, they were obedient. And you may have realized, I, I can trust this kid. I know they're not perfect. They mess up sometimes and they get bad periods and bad attitudes. But, but they definitely earn my trust. And we begin to realize we don't have to hold the reins so tightly on those. You know what I mean? We can allow these kids a little more freedom. They're not going to do something dumb. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Well, Jesus was now 12 years old. And he had never, ever disobeyed. He had never deceived his parents. He had never told a lie. So he had Joseph and Mary's total trust. They knew they could trust this boy. <laughs> well, we don't know this, but with little James and Jude, his younger brothers, uh, and maybe some of his other siblings, you know, might not have worked that way with them. Certainly it didn't work that way with them. Mary and Joseph may have thought, we got to keep an eye on these others. But with Jesus, they, they probably would have thought, I don't know where he is right now, but I'm confident he's not pulling a fast one on me. I know I can trust this boy. So they didn't worry about him. If he wasn't with Mary, he's probably with Joseph. Maybe with some of the cousins, maybe with some of his friends. He's doing fine. <laughs> so... So Joseph and Mary, based on their past experience with Jesus, were just confident that Jesus was certainly not doing anything wrong. He certainly wasn't getting in trouble. They just assumed he was up with some of the others. It was a big crowd of people, relatives and friends, making this pilgrimage. So they traveled from Jerusalem a full day. And I guess they were getting ready to set up camp for the night. And Joseph and Mary got together. They found each other. Where's Jesus? Well, I thought he was with you. <laughs> Uh-oh. Maybe he's with his cousins. No. No, he's nowhere to be found. So next morning, what's going on? They head back to Jerusalem looking for him. So they're a day out of Jerusalem, a day back to Jerusalem. On the third day, after looking for him all day there in Jerusalem, they finally found him. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, first, we need to ask again, did Jesus do something wrong here? I mean, it might be tempting for us to find ourselves tending to agree with his mother Mary. Jesus, how dare you stay behind like this and cause us all this worry? How, why didn't you tell us what you were going to do? You dishonored your parents here. Mary said, son, why have you treated us like this? She sounds like she's putting a guilt trip on him, doesn't she? Now, we know better. We know Jesus did not honor, dishonor his parents. He didn't do anything wrong. He never sinned. That included when he was 12 years old. Think about it. Why are they taking him to Jerusalem in the first place? Celebrate the Passover. Where'd that happen? At the temple. They're taking him to the temple. And I think it's probably very reasonable to assume that when they left the temple, they didn't think twice about Jesus. <laughs> they just assumed he was with the others, just like they did on the trip. Jesus didn't go anywhere. He didn't leave them. He just stayed where they'd taken him, at the temple. He didn't run off. <laughs> he was right there where they took him. 
But he's now talking with the Jewish teachers. His parents had left him. <laughs> and now Mary's trying to make Jesus feel guilty about it. Now, Jesus could have said right here, hey, come on, Mom. You're the one who brought me here. I didn't leave you. You left me. Stop trying to put a guilt trip on me. <laughs> no, Jesus didn't say that. That would have been true, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't have been honoring to Mary. So he simply said, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? He's asking her questions. He may be trying to get her to think a little bit, but there's no disrespect here. Now, these are the only words of Jesus himself spoken in his human body coming out his mouth that Jesus made sure were recorded for us in the Bible, in his word, until about 18 years later when he begins his ministry. So, if these are the only words we have from his mouth for the first 30 years of his life on earth, it kind of stands to reason that maybe they're important. <laughs> and I want to come back to them in just a minute. I want to focus on them just for a minute or so here. But first, let's think briefly about his conversation with those Jewish teachers. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been fascinating? Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall there and listen to that conversation? Like I said earlier, I think the only reason we don't have more children than what we might put in the category of child prodigy kids, you know, is because we, we allow our kids to indulge themselves in a significant amount of selfish, lazy behavior. And we do it because we ourselves are guilty of the same thing, and we feel guilty about making them work too hard. And we may even feel, find ourselves feeling sorry for kids who decide to seriously discipline themselves. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but it may seem to us, oh, I think that kid's going off the deep end. They're studying too much. They're memorizing too much. We may say, hey, hey, listen, you're spending too much time doing all that work. Uh, you need to relax a little bit. You know, enjoy life. Be a little more well-rounded. Well-rounded, well you know. <laughs> We're afraid they're going to be different. <laughs> and they certainly will be different, wouldn't they, if they, if they engage in that kind of study. And discipline. You don't have many kids doing that, but some would. But it's different in a good kind of way. But, you know, true prodigies, you know, these kids that we call prodigies, they will often drive themselves to do an enormous amount of memory work and, and work that requires a lot of mental and physical discipline. I mean, they work hard. Well, Jesus would certainly have come across as an amazing child prodigy. Verse 47 tells us that these teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Why? Well, it's not just because Jesus is God. Yes, he's God in the flesh. I know we've already been through this, but, but he had spent the better part of 12 years not being lazy, not being undisciplined. He didn't sin. He knew the scriptures. I expect that he was already very familiar with prophecies that prophesied his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. You know, we can imagine him asking those Jewish teachers what they thought David was talking about when he said, they pierced my hands and my feet, since David never had his hands and feet pierced. Maybe he asked them, and maybe they thought, whoa, that's a pretty good question, Jesus. <laughs> Perhaps he asked them what they thought Isaiah meant when he wrote, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. Maybe he asked, how is it that the Messiah is prophesied to bear the sins of many and his soul make an offering for guilt? And how is it that the Messiah will pour out his soul to death 
and be cut off out of the land of the living, and yet shall live to prolong his days and divide the spoil. How would that work? And I can imagine those guys saying, whoa, this kid's asking some pretty deep questions. And that's in Scripture. He's bringing it right out of Scripture. I imagine Jesus was asking a lot of questions like these. And so, like the Bible says, the teachers are amazed. Jesus knew who he was. He already knew that God was his father. Joseph and Mary knew that before he was even born. Zechariah and Elizabeth knew it. Simeon and Anna knew it. The angels knew it. The angels announced it to the shepherds, so they knew it. Mary and Joseph and Zechariah, angels appeared to them too. Jesus knew who he was. So in the words of Jesus, the only words we have from the mouth of Jesus for his first 30 years of his life on earth, he said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He was gently saying, you really didn't have to be searching, did you? Think about it. You know who I am. You should have realized I'd be right here until you came back to get me. We all know who my true father is. You shouldn't be surprised I'd be in his house. <laughs> it's interesting that in verse 50, Luke wrote, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And maybe our first reaction is to say, wait a minute, <laughs> Joseph, Mary, the angel told you who Jesus is. You know he's the son of God. You've been raising him for 12 years. How can you not understand this? But let's be careful here. Luke didn't say they didn't understand who he was. They did understand who he was. But they hadn't been able to put all the pieces together yet. Jesus was saying a hope some things here that they couldn't quite assimilate and internalize. For us, it's kind of easy to understand it. But for them, it was not. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We need to never forget that. You remember how later on in his ministry, Jesus spoke plainly to his followers and, and many times they just couldn't get it. They just didn't understand it all. And we think, how could they miss that? For example, in Luke, the book we're studying, chapter 18, he wrote this, verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. <laughs> well, in hindsight, that seems perfectly clear to us. It was just, he was just stating the fact. This is what's going to happen, guys, and he stated it very clearly. But it wasn't at all clear to them. Look at the next verse. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So it's kind of like that with Joseph and Mary. They understood who he was, but they couldn't wrap their minds around what he was telling them at that point in time. And by the way, <laughs> the same thing's true of us, even in our own time, isn't it? I mean, think about it. <laughs> I'm sure this has to happen to you just like it does to me. There are many times we read something Jesus said <laughs> in the Bible. It's been there all these years. And our reaction is, Lord, why on earth did you say that? What did you mean by that? Why did you say it that way? I don't understand you, Lord. <laughs> now the time will come, we'll understand it. All of it. But meanwhile, <laughs> you know, we, there are lots of things we don't understand, so we shouldn't be too hard on Joseph and Mary, I don't think. <laughs> 
But here's Jesus moving from childhood into adulthood. And he certainly loves Mary and he certainly loves Joseph. But his ultimate allegiance is not to Mary and not to Joseph. His ultimate allegiance is to God, his father. There was an incident later in his life that throws a little light on this. It's over in Luke again, chapter 11. Jesus was doing some really important teaching about spiritual warfare. And while he's teaching, a woman interrupted him. But it wasn't meant to be a negative interruption. She just wanted to let him know, wow, she's impressed with his teaching. Uh, here's Luke's account of what happened. Verse 27, he said, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. <laughs> so she's trying to brag on him. She's, she's amazing. Your mom has to be proud. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So she's saying, you're an incredible teacher. Your mom has to be really proud of you. And it was a perfect opportunity for Jesus to start praising Mary. <laughs> I heard John MacArthur say, this has been a good time for Jesus to have said, Hail Mary. <laughs> but he didn't do that. No. He said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What's he doing? He's shifting the focus away from Mary and onto his Father in heaven. Praise didn't go to Mary. The praise went to God. And Mary, just like everybody else, had to do what Jesus said here. Hear the word of God and keep it if she wanted to be blessed. It wasn't enough just to give birth to the Messiah. Jesus made that very clear. Verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. You may remember that after the shepherds came with their testimony, their experience with the angels, Luke told us then that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, once again, Mary's been given something to ponder deeply about. Can you imagine? <laughs> you know what? It's at least possible that Mary and Luke had some conversations about all this. She told him about what was happening and going on in her mind and her thought as she tried to figure these things out and think these things through. Some scholars believe that Luke might have spent some time talking with Mary herself as the Holy Spirit moved him to write all these things down. You remember at the beginning of his book, Luke said, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. You know, God made Luke go talk to eyewitnesses and Mary certainly would have been an eyewitness from the beginning, wouldn't she, of all these things. You may remember when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus put his mother Mary under the care of the apostle John. Remember that? And early Christian historians like Irenaeus and Eusebius tell us that John eventually moved to, to Ephesus and, and probably where he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And that, by the way, he would have done that several years after Luke had already finished writing these things down that we're studying right now. Luke probably wrote his gospel around 60 AD. So if Mary had was still alive. And we don't know this for certain. We're just conjecturing. But if she had been alive, she'd probably been in her mid to late 70s. So it's certainly reasonable that Luke might have interviewed her. <laughs> Can't you imagine that interview? You can almost imagine her telling Luke, Luke, as you might imagine, the Lord certainly kept giving me lots of stuff to think about. <laughs> yeah, what a life she lived. 
Verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So there we are. <laughs> verse 52, one verse, 18 years of Jesus' life. We know nothing about what happened after that, from the time he was 12 to the time he's 30. The word wisdom, Sophia, is a common word for wisdom in the New Testament. Stature, Elikia, can refer to physical height, can refer to age in some cases, but here it probably means Jesus continued to grow taller physically into manhood. Favor is the Greek word charis, which means grace. Uh, but you know, the, the truth that Luke probably wants to drive home more than any other in this whole passage, by including this account in his gospel, is that even at the age of 12, Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was the Son of God. It was true. But it was incredibly divisive. In our day, we can toss that term around and maybe people don't get upset. But over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of God. And over and over again, he refers to God as his Father. But it was never a light thing. It shouldn't be now to be called the Son of God. To call Jesus the Son of God? It either means that we believe him and therefore worship him, or we don't believe him and therefore we have to accuse him of blasphemy. Now that's what it means. When the Jewish leaders were calling on Pilate to crucify Jesus, Pilate said, I can find no fault in this man. And the Jews explained it to Pilate. They said, listen, Pilate, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he has made himself to be the son of God. It was blasphemy if it wasn't true. So when Jesus says he's the son of God, it's a very, very serious thing. However, we respond. And every one of us has to decide how we are going to respond to that claim. And it'll either make us furious, just like it did those Jewish religious leaders. and We'll accuse him of the worst kind of blasphemy like they did. Or we'll believe him. We'll realize it's true. We'll fall at his feet and worship him. God inspired Luke to give us this gospel so that it would be exactly what would happen, that we'd realize Jesus really is the Son of God. And he knew it early. And that we would spend our lives worshiping him and serving him and loving him and trusting him and giving him lots of glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for raising up this man, Luke, for causing him to get the kind of training he did in medicine and causing him to be so meticulous in his thinking as a historian, causing him to be a good close friend of the Apostle Paul, and then causing him to write down this incredible gospel as well as the book of Acts. Lord, you use him in such a powerful way. And we thank you so much for his life. But Lord, we thank you more for the one he pointed us to so clearly and so powerfully. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you gave us this little window of that we could look into the life of Jesus when he was 12 years old and realize that even then he knew that you were not just God, but his father. He is God, the son come in the flesh. And Lord, we know he came for one reason, and that was to follow the, the prophecies, the pattern that you'd given all through your Old Testament of these lambs that were sacrificed on the Passover follow all these things all the way to the cross, living that perfect life, never once sinning. Lord, it's hard for us to imagine what it must have like, been like to have, to have been Mary and Joseph with a perfect son. 
their guilt showing up all the time, but his never. <laughs> Lord, what an amazing thing it must have been. And never sinning and then taking our place on that cross, becoming that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the sacrificial lamb. How we thank you. You've put together an awesome plan, Lord. You are God and there's none else. And we want to follow Jesus well. We want to worship him and love him, trust him as the son of God and trust you as our heavenly father because of Jesus. So thank you for putting this in your word. Help us to be more like him. Help us to trust you more. We pray in his name. Amen.